Good morning, marketers, and welcome to the If You Market Podcast. We are the only podcast that markets the shit out of it. The If You Market Podcast is brought to you by Mountaintop Data and Joto PR. I'm your host, Sky Cassidy, joined by Carla Joe Helms today. Hi, guys. And uh, actually, today we have with us Tim O'Brien of O'Brien Communications. We're going to be talking about the balancing act of bad news, a little bit topical uh, for us now in the middle of, uh, of coronavirus and all. But uh, Tim's the founder of the Pittsburgh-based O'Brien Communications and has uh, provided crisis support style of PR for everything from enterprises, companies to startups. Very similar to what our own co-host KJ uh, Carla Joe Helms does here. Nice to have a fellow crisis management PR on the line. Nice to have you. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to have to try to keep as quiet as possible and let you guys talk about what you know about today. But That will never work. In case you're wondering, Tim knows where all the skeletons are. If your CEO is tweeting random things out at two in the morning, you might need Tim O'Brien here to to help you out. He's also the host of the Shaping Opinion podcast, which I've been uh, personally enjoying lately. Tim, thank you for uh, for coming on the show today. Thank you, Sky, and thank you, KJ. It's great to be with you guys. Thanks. You have you have such a nice voice too. Well, thank you. <laughs> your podcast voice. <laughs> yeah, that, there's a there's a cartoon I I saw that it, it was it was in a podcasting website and that was it. I I remember a guy saying to his wife, "Do you want me to talk to you in my podcast voice?" So that must be a thing. <laughs> hey, good morning. Yeah. <laughs> podcast boys um yeah i'm a little upset you sound better than i do but uh, i'll have to live with it i'll get over it so i characterize you as knowing where the skeletons are being in crisis pr um but i kind of made that up i don't know for sure can you tell the listeners a little bit more about what you do what your company does over there sure. at uh, o'brien communications well, I am a veteran public relations person, so I, I do a lot of crisis and issues work, and I always have. I, I also do other types of public relations as well. So it's everything from marketing and writing and content development to media relations, media coaching, and of course, what we're talking about today, crisis and issues management. And a lot of it blends together. So it, a lot of it comes together at one time. And I wouldn't quite say it's knowing where the skeletons are so much. I, I, I guess there's a certain perception. And, you, and if you look at TV shows like Scandal, uh, you might get a certain impression of what crisis PR people do. But for the most part, actually, it's the opposite of that. It's trying to, whatever a company has to deal with, bringing that out and bringing it out in the right way and not letting people come up with their own framing for it. So that's kind of a description of that. I've been handling crisis work since the 1980s when I started in the PR business. And before that, I worked in broadcasting. And, uh, and as you mentioned, I do a, a podcast now. And it goes, it brings me back to my first love, which was radio. And I really am glad podcasting came along because now I can do the PR work that I love and also get back into my audio roots. So that's, that's a quick summary of my, my background. So it's more about um, kind of communication than it is being the better call Saul of, um, of, <laughs> of, of PR, uh, I get the feeling that you may have written the line, good times, bad times, communication breakdown. Uh, <laughs> and I'm wondering how much of our audience has no idea what I'm talking about. So is that more what it's about? It's about 
training people and helping people communicate properly more than handling these kind of midnight fires? Cause I know there are people, there are, you know, kind of fixers. Are you, do you do fixer work and, no, or is it no. more purely communications and getting the message right kind of? I wouldn't call it fix, fixer work under any circumstance, <laughs> I, but I, I know I, you I, wouldn't call it that, but <laughs> no, I, I, I'll give you an example though of, you know, you, you, when people think what does a crisis communications person do and there's the usual list of things that could go wrong that i've worked on like uh, mergers and acquisitions layoffs bankruptcies product recalls severe things like a, a chairman of a company dying or in one case three workers in, a, in an electric plant dying uh it was an industrial accident and i had to kind of it was a Sunday afternoon, so I was at home and I ended up three hours later on site with that client trying to assess what needed to be done on a communications front when they died. So you deal with severe issues, but to your other point about the, the, the kind of more headline grabbing activities, I've, I've dealt with other things too. I, I remember when I worked on the corporate side, when I was in-house at, at a company and the HR director would oftentimes come down to my office and say, I have an HR situation here that could be a PR situation if we're not careful. And he would talk to me about it and we would deal with it. And it was usually internal. And, and because it was an HR matter, it was usually private unless it went public. So, uh, so we would deal with it. And there were certain things that would come up. Uh, people doing really i guess the common theme was that he dealt with a lot was workers and employees not treating each other with respect sometimes the stories behind that were pretty entertaining but uh but they were not and they usually weren't when i say entertaining it was like there were they're there, always there, entertaining <laughs> they they were they weren't there were there wasn't a victim involved they were just uh, you had a, one example was when a group of employees went out to a bachelor party and they brought a video camera with them and uh, they caught the supervisor doing something he should not have been doing on video. Every part uh, of the story is just like yes I see something bad coming. Yep, that was the first <laughs> step. Was bad, the very first step. <laughs> So you have that kind of thing. Uh, and that, that wasn't at that company, that was with a client situation. But I, I remember that situation happening. And, and it's like, it's always, those are kind of the ones where you just sit back and before you start doing what you're supposed to do, and that is crisis communications and advice. But the first thing you wonder is, what were they thinking? What were they thinking? <laughs> and right. then you start from there. That so is that, that is the most common. That is the very first question. Like there's there's a number one question you probably ask your clients, right? But the the number question you ask yourself is what were they thinking? That is so that is so true, isn't it? <laughs> it is. It is. It's, Do you I, ever I, have an answer for that? I never have an answer for that. Well, I, you know, I had an interesting <laughs> it's discussion. It's always they weren't. Oh yeah. Well, I I hadn't. I had a talk with another person I know that does crisis work. And he told me that a lot of, that a lot of his clients are the cause of their own problems. You know, that, that they're, you know, that they, that they start from the standpoint of what did you do wrong now? And I, I guess something that's didn't his, happen to them. They did what they do kind of, they did what they do and they had to explain it. And in my case, I, I 
I don't usually have that happen. It's not that they, it's not that problems didn't happen, but they are things that you can explain. Yeah, it's like if there's a layoff, uh, you can explain a layoff on, on, within the context of economics or whatever, like right now, if there's a layoff and we're in the middle of the pandemic and trying to come out of it, we can explain that. Uh, every now and then you have a, a rogue manager or employee who does something. And like I said earlier, and like you said, KJ, you do have to step back and think, okay, what were they thinking? And usually when you're asking that question, you're not going to defend it. You're not, if, that, if that's the question we're asking ourselves, you're not going to defend the action, whatever it was. So what you end up doing is focusing on what was done about this person, what had to be done about this person, and what had to be done as a result of whatever it is they did. Yeah, exactly. So as somebody outside the PR industry, I see it. there's kind of uh, accidents that have to be properly communicated. So you don't put your foot in your mouth and say some people died in an industrial accident. It's an accident. It wasn't like there was safety issues, accidents happen. Um, but you don't want to come out and say something stupid that's going to cause a bunch of problems, even if it's factual. And then there's things that aren't accidents. There's things that are kind of self-inflicted damage just because of people's own personal weaknesses or whatever it is. And uh, it sounds like you deal more with the accidents that happen type of stuff. So actually, it's, it's as often as not, it's the kind of crisis you can plan for and then the crises that just happen. And it's kind of a mix. Right? It really is. Like the, plan, the ones you can plan for is when you know there's a, a labor negotiation contract coming up and you actually have a date for when the contract's going to expire and the union starts saying we're going to go on strike. Uh, so you kind of know that's coming ahead of time or could happen so you can plan for it. Same thing with a bankruptcy or a merger. You can, so those are the kinds you can plan for. But then the other ones you mentioned are the ones that you can't always plan for. You, you have a plan right. for if they happen, but you just uh, hope they don't happen. And then if something bad happens like a plant explosion or uh, I, I've worked with nursing homes and I, I've had nursing homes have situations where, and sometimes this is where you have to this, try to determine who's right and who's wrong on our end. And that is when you have uh, a resident of a nursing home, an elderly person, and they have family members and family members make allegations sometimes that you know, my loved one wasn't cared for right, or, or right. The, the person That's actually fell. really common, isn't it? That's a very common thing. And sometimes staff are definitely at fault. And sometimes it's a baseless allegation. And you never know, you can't just take anything on face value. There's a, there usually are protocols in place, and these places are highly regulated. And they're, so they do their own investigation. And then my job in those situations has been to try to make sure that I'm asking all the right questions, kind of like an inside journalist would, and get as much information as possible so that they, so that whatever they're saying is true, and whatever they're, whatever they can't say, they they tell why. In other words, we can't say because of HIPAA regulations, we can't talk about this particular resident, or we can't talk about their condition because of HIPAA, but we can say A, B, and C. And we're continuing to conduct an investigation. And then if something really did happen that was the nursing home's fault, you, you, you should definitely come out and say, 
what what happened there. Now, my my work in that area and in a lot of these areas goes hand in hand with their lawyers. So uh, mm-hmm. I I don't I don't tell my client what to say without making sure that we're all on the same page with the lawyers to make sure that everything's being done the right way uh, across the board, across the board. And it sounds to me like the very first thing that you're, you're doing is you're just filling the vacuum of the void of information while you're doing the investigation, while you're finding out more information so that you can start to be the first one to frame the response and the story. Is that right? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, Almost that's... handling the uh, court of public opinion, um, whether it's actually the public or the employees or the clients before the investigation is before the actual known is, is, is done, making sure you have a proper field laid out for the for the truth to uh, to be heard properly. Maybe that that's a good analogy. It's one we use a lot. Court of public opinion, and in its uh, and and I've used it in my media training as as a way to structure everything. And to your point, when if you look at it from that point, there's one big difference between what we do in the in an actual court, and that is there's a judge who regulates court activity, and in the public there's no arbiter of what we do. So it's like the Wild West compared to a very structured environment, the courtroom. But to your point, there's a discovery process in the law. And I think that's pretty much what I you, you just described and that I was talking about is we go through sort of a discovery process. And uh, in my case, another big difference between what I do and, and what lawyers do, uh, in the legal world, there's this concept of everybody's entitled to a defense and innocence until proven guilty. And in the court of public opinion, unfortunately, you're usually guilty until proven innocent. It's the opposite. Yeah. yeah. And, and, I'm not, and nobody's bound or entitled to a defense. And I, so when I work with a client, I reserve my right not to work with clients I don't believe in or think are right or or. or and deserving actually of my services. Uh, I, it's my reputation on the line and I'm not going to put my reputation at risk for any client just because they, they feel entitled. And I think to that's really important, you know, because it, you're responsible really for, um, you know, the truth that gets put out there and, you know, you're put it and you have such a vast effect as their communication arm. Um, yes you know, whether something can be done or not. And if you really truly feel like uh, integrity wise, that that's not a client that you want to represent. I think it's really important that you don't do that. I think it's How do great. you handle it? How do you handle it, KJ? Um, I do the same thing. It's if I have a personal conviction against it, um, I know that I'm not going to be a true representative of them in the court of public opinion. If I don't think that that client has handled uh, things ethically up to that particular point. And it's, um, you know, I'm going to put my professional, uh, you know, license out there, my professional expertise around there to protect them. Um, I will think twice about it. If I do think that they're, you know, worthy of being able to tell their story um, and get their story out, absolutely. I'll support them. But you so, know, that is where you're a little different than an attorney, right? Question Definitely. for both you guys. When you think twice about a client, because, you know, maybe it's, they're not the most evil person, so you're not going to represent them, but things are a little sketchy. 
is the thinking twice coming back and saying, you are problematic. This is going to cost more. Is that, is it, I mean, not so much a negotiation as trying to get more out of them, but just, this is going to cost more for me to, you know, cause I might lose, if I take a dollar from you, I might lose $2 from other people because I'm putting my neck out for you basically. I usually don't think of it that way. I, in fact, I never, I don't, when I look at the dollars part of it, the business side of it, it, it really is based on the amount of time it might take. Now, if they do have a complex situation or it's made complex, I, I might say, yes, it's going to cost more because this is more than we thought. And, uh, and usually in a crisis situation, I haven't had any, you don't have heavy negotiations because usually if, if there's a good chemistry between us and I trust them and they trust me and everybody's wanting to do what I feel is the right thing and a good thing and an ethical thing, uh, then there's this chemistry and I'm there to help any way I can and, and do whatever I can to help them. And I think uh, I, I, I don't have problems with the business side of it. I really haven't had that. Although to your point, uh, I, I, I do a, a good amount of due diligence before I take an assignment, especially if it's somebody I don't know and I've never met before. And I, I weigh it very heavily before I jump in. And I can think of an example uh, that, that helps, might help illustrate that. A, a few years ago, there was a nonprofit organization that its leadership was, you know, had an investigative journalist following them, uh, doing certain things, doing interviews about them, and they they knew about this, so they needed help. They they so they called a lawyer who called me, and I came in and I met with them, and I asked them if if the thing what you know basically what's the reporter looking into, and they told me, and I wrote took notes and I. I did all the things you would do at first. So they said asked, we were at a, this bachelor party. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, this was much more of uh, just, I would say it was more financial malfeasance. It right. was like, and it wasn't that they were stealing money. It's that basically they were taking money out of the left pocket and putting it in the right pocket, uh, so to speak. And because uh, they were a nonprofit and, uh, and who was making money out of this and how was that being done? Right. Uh, and not so very transparent. I, and yes, and that's what the reporter was looking into. And so I asked them, you know, is any of this true? And they said, absolutely not. They're totally fabricating this. There's somebody with an ax to grind and it's all that. And I thought, okay, well, why don't we get together again, you know, and I will start to work up a plan and, and work up, you know, a contract and those types of things before we start to work and we, and I left and there was just something about that meeting. They were a little bit too comfortable with their denials and I, I would have done this anyways. So I, I did research. I, 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 I put my reporter's cap on and I did my own research. I didn't talk to anybody inappropriately. I just did secondary research about all the people involved and it wasn't too long before I could see that, some of the people involved had prior issues and a pattern they, they of behavior, in, kind of a yeah. pattern of behavior. One had an arrest record and, uh, and those types of things. And I, I never did really find out whether or not 
what that reporter was investigating was true or not. But I, I got an uneasy feeling based on my research that I wasn't dealing with trustworthy people. So I decided I'm not, I called them back and I said, I think you need somebody else and uh, it won't be me. So that's right. kind of what, what I'll do in a case like that. You said, here's Saul Goodman's phone number. Um, you need a fixer, <laughs> not a PR agent. <laughs> it, it's funny you say that because I have colleagues that I will refer business to if for whatever reasons I can't do it or take it. But in cases like that, I don't refer the business. I, I actually either. have a policy on that. I don't want to do that to a friend. So I, I don't refer the business. Right. Yeah. right. Well, I think we've gone around on this. We've, we've tiptoed around the topic quite a bit today. We're talking about crisis management. Um, I want to get into it before we have to go to a break here. The title of uh, today's episode, and hopefully we don't change this later, but uh, the balancing act of bad news. We're in the middle of coronavirus right now. Um, one of the notes I hear is minimizing fear and panic in a crisis and kind of how and when to yell fire in a theater. You don't want to do more damage with your delivery of a problem, of the news on a problem than the problem itself. So let's do a quick pivot here to really digging into to that subject, the PR of that. How do you deliver the bad news so the delivery itself doesn't cause more damage? That's the, that's the million question. dollar question. Yes, uh, it is a balancing act of, of how to do it. The first thing it kind of you'll sense a running theme based on my earlier comments, but the first thing you want to know is or is it true or not? I want to know if if there's what where the truth is, where the confusion is and and sometimes what we don't know because that's usually where the perception problems come in because sometimes there are things we can't speak to or we don't know, and people look for an information void and they fill it themselves. So if the company or the organization can't fill the void of information, the public will or your critics will or your competition will. And those people will make stories up that just to make you look bad. So the balancing act is, okay, where is all this coming from? And how do we fill the void with whatever it is we can say to give people a clear picture of what's going on? One of the things, Scott, you and I talked about uh, a week ago was and I use the analogy of the of the, the Titanic and and this issue of fear and, and panic. And right now we're in the middle of the, the the pandemic. We're hopefully coming out of it as a country. And we have all these companies trying to restart and organizations trying to restart society, trying to get back on its feet. And one of the things I was on a, my soapbox about early in this process was how the my local media was spreading fear and panic to get ratings and they they would just do these sensational stories that did not make it any better they were speculating they were guessing they were making things in our city of pittsburgh sound as bad as what was going on at that time in italy when it really wasn't the truth right. they were doing they were, their job get ratings they were they were, they were getting ratings <laughs> yeah and uh and so but you know, my plummeting ratings after a while, by the way. But anyway, go ahead. No, I'm that's so true. That's true. Yeah. So, uh, so I wrote a blog post and I, and I did a podcast episode where I used this analogy and I, I to, to make this point, and that is when there's fear and there's panic, people do irrational things. And our job in crisis work is to not 
is to try to help people not be irrational and so they can make clear decisions. So the analogy would be the Titanic. You know, there were people on that boat before it sunk. They had no life jackets on, but they were scared. And they jumped over the lifeboats into the water just to get away from the sinking ship. Well, they, they didn't have a life jacket on and they died because they were afraid and they were panicked. Had they had they been able to think it through, they would have just climbed onto a lifeboat if it was there and gotten away from the boat and lived. And that's, that's kind of a classic case of what fear and panic does to a human being in a stressful situation. So I view my job, so uh, in terms of social value, uh, I, when I look at, if you want to give an honorable characteristic to crisis work, I, the way I assign it is, I try to help people see the situation they're in or the situation we're all looking at more clearly. And then they make their own minds up. It's not, right. it's not for me to make their mind up for them. So in the Titanic analogy, it's kind of cheating because we all know the Titanic sunk. Right. Uh, spoiler alert. If anybody hasn't seen the movie yet, <laughs> DiCaprio dies, Titanic sinks. Um, I think they bring him back in the sequel, but what if you're talking about a large ship? Let's call it, COVID-19 express. And there's people screaming, hey, this ship is going down, jump overboard quick. And other people screaming, it's just a dent. Um, don't worry about it. Don't panic. You know, that what you said, is it true? Really important to know whether something's true or not. But when you have half the ship screaming one thing and half screaming another, you don't know if you have to jump overboard right now or you're going to die or if you're going to kill yourself by jumping overboard. So it seems like that, I mean, is it true that is a really first critical step, but within a company, if it's not something so drastic, how do you find that spot in between the two extremes, that balancing act? Is, I mean, is there a way to get an idea if you're in the right rational medium? You're not, maybe you don't get it 100%, but that you're not over panicking one direction or another because there's panic causing problems, but there's also actual disasters and real bad things. And if you don't act, you're going to die. I think well, there, yeah, that's an, that's usually an easy part of the process because you, you, you get to the, you try to find out whatever the issue is. And, you know, even in the pandemic, let's use the pandemic as an example, because we all can relate to it. And everybody knows that, yes, there is a disease that's not made up and we know people are dying from it. So there is definitely a risk. Uh, we also know that it went around the world, so nobody's uh, exempt from it. So those are the kind of the basic facts. But then as time goes by, we realize that certain age groups are more vulnerable than others, and certain age groups are less vulnerable, and certain, and transmission, we start to learn the facts that the transmission is more likely, let's say, in a subway car than on a beach. Uh, we start to learn these things. And then quick, and everybody think, get on the subway and go to the beach. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So if I'm the public relations person for any organization, and, and I did have a client, I have had a client involved with this that is a hospital. So we prepared for the surge. And we prepared for it as though it were going to happen here the way it happened in other places. So we did we prepared you prepare for the worst. And so in part of the preparation is what do we say that balancing act so and I think what you say you start to focus on process what can you do yourself to protect yourself and others 
And the CDC has done a good job with that. They, so we know to wear masks and social distancing, and there's a protocol, and everybody's aware of it now. But then there becomes these phases, the, 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 the process evolves over time, and you see numbers going up in some places and down in others. And then the, 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 the communications challenge is, well, what do we do now? We've told people that they have to go home and stay home. When do we start telling people it's okay to leave home? When do we tell people it's okay to have a graduation party? Where do we do it? Maybe not in the middle of New York City, but maybe South Dakota, maybe because they're not as, you know, in as much risk, but you have to, and just as I said, I work with lawyers. I mean, if you're uh, working for a company or an organization, you want to make sure you're working hand in hand with your health officials, your health authorities, your lawyers, your, if you have health people in your organization, everybody is doing things the right way and nobody's making arbitrary decisions. So that would be the, the balancing act you, you make. It's, it's, and my way of, of, of dealing with that is to, is to follow process. And the process would be, okay, let's get, get at the truth. Let's find out what the real truth is. Let's find out what the challenge are, challenges are. Let's find out what people want to do, can do, shouldn't do yet, and go from there. Well said, well said. I, I would uh, add on to it. It seems leadership is very important within a company. If, if each individual person on the deck of the Titanic is making the decision on how much to panic because there isn't information coming from the leadership, um, you know, you see when people, when there is a real disaster, even when somebody's saying, remain calm, please work your way to the door slowly, much less people get trampled to death, even though it's a real disaster than when they just say, oh my God, the building's coming down, every man for themselves, kind of. And I think that's the, the important part is making sure that it's not arbitrary, right? Like you're, just like Tim said, you're making sure that you communicate and there's different publics involved, but also what is an acceptable truth? Well, the CDC guidelines is an acceptable truth, right? right. The arbitrary, the hype, the, you know, the, the added hyperbole, that's all arbitrary. That's all, you know. Unfortunately, we don't, that, it's the court of public opinion now. We don't have an actual court saying, here's the <laughs> truth. So you get this massive division. I suppose in a company, it's a lot easier because you have kind of dictatorial power from the top to say, here's what's happening. The information might change and then things may change a little bit, but here's where we're going. One thing before we there go is on a, break, There is journalism 101 though. I mean, that is your yeah. rule. I mean, there is basic journalism, right? And nowhere That's, in journalism does it say to uh, communicate the arbitrary unless you, you know, communicate that it's your opinion, right? Nowhere does it say that. Yeah, the, the journalist, uh, there's always been this sort of evolving journalistic uh, code too. And the way journalists are today are, is different than they were 30, 40 years ago. But I, I think to your point about that dictatorial control, there are some examples that were from my point of view, they were interesting during this crisis because they challenged that that notion of, of autocratic control in a corporate environment. And that is, you had doctors in hospitals up in New York City that were doing social media posts, and they were basically publicizing on their own to the public the shortage of ventilators or the shortage of face masks and PPEs. We all know what PPEs are now, thanks to this, you know, the shortages. And so you had that happening and you had a couple hospitals 
try to come down on those doctors and nurses for going directly to the public. Because most organizations have a policy where you funnel communications to the public through the communications department, just as you funnel things through legal when you do some, something of a contract nature. And that's usually a good idea because it just makes sure that the company's speaking with one voice and you don't have five different people out there saying whatever they feel and making the company not only look bad, but sometimes send really irresponsible messaging to the public. Right. I want to put a pin in this because we're going to take a quick break. I don't want to, mm-hmm. I don't want to uh, put it all out there, but I think what we're about to jump into here is kind of the whistleblower dilemma. Um, you know, because there is a time and place for that type of thing. And that's somebody deciding their own balance of when is the damage done by not going through the pop proper channels less than the damage done by the information not getting out there. A, Great a whistleblower. How do you balance that? How do you balance saying I can go to my bosses, this has to get out there, but I've been doing it and it's not getting out. So I need to, I need to go outside the proper channels because this has to get out there. Now, sometimes people are leaking and it shouldn't be put out there and they have a bone to pick and sometimes they're being the right information is being suppressed. So a whole nother balancing act of the whistleblower. But let's let's jump into that after the break. Um, So if you could think about that for us for for just one minute, uh, Tim, and we'll be right back. You're listening to the If You Market podcast. We've got Tim O'Brien of O'Brien Communications on talking about the balancing act of bad news. We'll be right back. Every single day, you and your team members are clicking send. These are important and valuable messages. They're probably important and valuable relationships, and yet you're relying on faceless digital communication to get these most important and valuable messages across. There's a better way. It's called Simple Personal Videos, and BombBomb makes it easy from our web app, from our mobile apps, from Gmail, Outlook, Salesforce, Outreach, Zendesk, and a variety of other places. We make it easy to record and send simple personal videos so that you can lead with your very best sales asset. And that is you, who you are. My name is Ethan Butte. I'm the chief evangelist at BombBomb, and I would love for you to try it absolutely free for two weeks at BombBomb.com. That's the word bomb twice, B-O-M-B, B-O-M-B.com. Welcome back to the If You Market Podcast. We are still talking with Tim O'Brien of O'Brien Communications about the balancing act of bad news right before the break. Uh, Tim, I keep trying to call you Tom because I see that giant O in O'Brien. But uh, right before the, uh, so if any listeners, if I call him Tom throughout the podcast, just know, I mean, obviously, Tim, and uh, I'm an idiot. But um, whistleblowers, the kind of whistleblower dilemma seems like it's, it's the same decision-making process of, of the balancing act of bad news. When do you step around your boss and go to their boss or to the press or whatever it is with news that you feel needs to get out there? Maybe you're wrong and it should go through the proper channels. I think um, on the issue of whistleblowers, I think there's two ways to look at it. One is as the whistleblower and the other is as the, let's say the the, the consumer of the information. And you might see news reports about whistleblowers, or you might be a public relations person, and you have a whistleblower doing something with your organization. And you have to decide, well, what do we say? What's our stance? We have a, a whistleblower out there. And th- this is what they're saying. Well, I think the first issue, and not to get too semantic, is when do we actually give someone that name, whistleblower? 
because when you do that, and, and this wasn't always the case, but in 2020, once you give someone then the title whistleblower, that's almost like giving someone sainthood. You right. know, it, it, it gives them this veneer of protection. That's true. And, so are and, they a disgruntled, are they a traitor, or are they a whistleblower? Um, it's, it's a fine nuance between, between those. Right. And, and, you know, and once the media hears the term whistleblower, and if they agree that, yes, we're going to call this person a whistleblower, they are definitely carrying the water now for that person. They're going to, and that person very well could be a disgruntled former employee. That could have been someone who got in trouble left and right. And nobody knows that because the records were private. Uh, that person could have uh, just been one, somebody that was disciplined and didn't like the employer or had an ax to grind with somebody. That right. could be the case. And, and I have dealt with situations like that, but the term whistleblower never came up. Right. Uh, but on, a, on the other hand, I know someone who was a whistleblower and she was involved with a very, very big situation uh, in, in, at the federal level. And she was a whistleblower and her life. And I, th I think, you know, I, I, I would use the term whistleblower sparingly, but she definitely fits the, the mold. And, and I think what happened with her is, a, is an example of what a whistleblower is and how you look at it. First off, she did her job and she was very loyal and honest. When she's noticed a problem, she reported it internally and she kept reporting it internally. She didn't give up. She kept trying to do it the right way in a constructive way. And the more she tried to do the right thing, there was a series of retaliatory measures taken against her. And there was a record of that. There were people retaliating. Sometimes they were seemed to be undermining her for no good reason. And then all of a sudden she started getting blamed for things that she never did. And so there was that pattern. So it escalated and until finally she and one other person who was noticing the same things and having the same things happen to him, they got together and they decided that they had no other recourse. Their lives were already, this is over, over a period of years, their, their lives were already not the same and they had to hire lawyers and they went out and they used whistleblower protections to do what they had to do. And they knew when they did it, they were going to pay a price, but they had to do that because they were not going to do anything but the right thing. And, and as time went by- price, right? I mean, they were already, it isn't like uh, they were sitting there and nobody knew and they hadn't said anything and they decided to first just go and report this. They were already um, being ground down by the people that probably should have been handling the problem were instead trying to handle them. I think so. And I think, I think the, the goal for anyone that wants to silence someone like her would be just to make her go away. Uh, and she just was so con committed to doing what was right and to doing what was right by the people who were affected by the injustices she saw uh, that she was willing to make that personal sacrifice to get it right. And she did. And it, the good news is it, it played itself out all the way through. And she did truly uh, get that whistleblower term associated with her name. And the people who were uh, at fault did end up losing their leadership positions. And it was all done the right way. It wasn't, she'll tell you, it wasn't easy and it was painful. But she was a whistleblower and it, and it did work out, but it was, it was not one of these situations where 
you know, she did, she had a messy departure from her job and she wasn't happy. And next thing you know, she's out there speaking in front of Congress. You know, it wasn't one of those situations. She really did. Did she uh, have fat? Did she have It reminds me of the whistleblower for Enron. Same situation. Do you remember that story? Oh, I do. Tim's going to say no comment. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> well, a funny thing about Enron, I, I, I worked for a publicly traded company at that time and we were in the tech space and I, I wasn't a big stock investor. And, and I always remembered the advice that uh, Warren Buffett gives and gave. And he always said, don't invest in anything you don't know about. Uh, in other words, make sure you know what they do to make money before you invest. It's that simple. So I remember at that time, I, I, I was... I started a file on Enron for myself. I thought, I, I, I want to find Interesting. out. Interesting. Yeah, I, and I, I thought, I want to learn what they do because I might want to invest in them. Uh, they just sound like such a hot company. I want to invest in that, but I, I won't do it until I learn what they do. So I started this file and I started reading them. And the more I read, I thought, I, I would even tell people at that time, I can still remember telling people, I can't figure out how they make their money. I, I know what they say, but I can't fall. I can't see where the money's coming from and where it's going. I, I, I'm too. I and I. I would say things like, "I'm just not smart enough to invest in this company because <laughs> they do something I I can't figure out." And uh, so I started the. And then whenever the scandal blew up, I thought, "Well, I guess I wasn't as as." Um, you weren't the only one. Yeah, <laughs> that couldn't figure out how to make that. They made their money. So don't yeah. don't invest in a company whose uh, prospectus says we do business. Don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, you know, it's kind of the same thing in crisis management that Tim was saying earlier, right? You really know the client before you say yes, that you're going to represent them. Yeah, that's right. Okay, so back to the whistleblower thing. I mean, it seems like there's two types. You have your possibly the most successful, but not really a whistleblower, somebody like Deep Throat in the, um, in the Nixon, uh, during Nixon times. Not a whistleblower because he never came out. He just leaked information that was useful to um, for people to find out what was really going on. So in one way, there's the getting the information out anonymously, which unless you have some really good information, um, it's just some hearsay from somewhere then. And then there's the actually coming out um, as yourself to represent yourself, probably because you don't have hard facts. And so you need your persona or you're already being torn apart so much that it's all you can do. That's, that is an interesting example. That's another one of those historical stories that, that I, that I know pretty well. Uh, I was a kid when that happened, but I was, I was always a news junkie and I can still remember reading about the, the, the whole Watergate thing. And I think, I think that one of the big changes now that you have now that you would not have then, I think if you leak information to anybody now, it's discoverable and it may not, you, the reporter may want to protect your identity, but there are so many ways to find out who you are that today I think, you know, when I never leak information, I never, I've had reporters over the years on non-crisis situations, just stories say, I heard this company is about to buy, you know, uh, sell off one of their subsidiaries and it's not, it wouldn't have been illegal for me to tell them, yeah, you're right. You're onto something. But I never, ever, ever violate a company confidentiality or a client confidentiality. So I never leak. And I and uh, 
But I know that's a very, very common thing in Washington, D.C. It's not as common in the corporate world because uh, you can get in uh, serious legal trouble and they do enforce it if, if you violate confidences in, in the corporate world. It's a little different down mm -hmm. in Washington. Right. I'm just picturing you now as a kid saying like, sorry, Mr. Nixon, but I can't take this, uh, this, uh, <laughs> I'm <don't> quite, <laughs> I don't quite feel good about this one or our Mr. Halderman, uh, I'm, uh, in Earl Lickman. <laughs> um, okay. Yeah. So it's, it's an interesting, I mean, these days you don't have much of a choice, maybe a lot from the Watergate situation. There's a lot more of, uh, maybe kind of spy craft type networks put together to be able to identify where information even came from. Um, but getting, let's get back. Uh, we kind of went on a bit of a tangent here. That's my specialty. I want to get back to the subject at hand. <laughs> We've only got a little bit of time left. This podcast about Watergate. I want to get back to the handling of bad news, the balancing act, whether it's coronavirus and letting people know what level of, panic and action to have, or let's jump to some more practical within a company examples of, let's say you, the company's not doing well and you need to make a lot of layoffs. Um, or there's some bad news that's about to come out about something the company did um, uh, at a bachelor party or whatever it is. <laughs> I'm sorry, I didn't have a question there. <laughs> I guess the question is for Tim is like, how do you do that and, and still portray the company in the best possible light, but also be transparent, right? Yeah. Downsizing, let's say a merger, somebody's buying your company and you're having to tell your employees, Hey, a lot of you are going to be gone. We don't know who, um, but please everybody don't go get a new job because you want to keep some, you, you know, key players. You don't want everything to fall apart. Maybe the merger's not even going to happen, but um, it looks likely if it ends up falling through, you don't want to be all your good people to have left. I think to your point, and we, we can go back and use the pandemic as an example, because it goes back to leadership having to be honest. And part of being honest is telling people what you don't know. And you can't predict the future. So you have organizations right now that are closed, and they may have operations that are closed. And when they, when they reopen, they may be able to open their main outlet, their main store, their main unit, but they may not be able to open everything at one time. And they may have to tell people, you know, we don't know when we'll be able to open those other divisions. We don't know when we'll be able to bring that, those other people back. And you have to be honest with that. And, and you also have to be honest with, well, under what circumstances would you need to be able to open that other facility? And I do have a client that's in that position right now. And they have reopened two facilities, but not their third. And they've had to tell people that until demand increases, we can't reopen the third. So we're going to tell you when demand increases, and we will reopen the third when demand does. But if it never comes back, we can't reopen it. And so you're, you're telling people who worked in that closed facility what's happening. You're not making any promises to them, but you are giving them the information they need perhaps to make decisions for themselves. Now on the side, to your point, you might have some great people in that organization you don't wanna lose. And I don't think that's a public relations issue. That's more of a management issue because I think what you end up having to do as a manager is 
get in touch with those people and say, look, we want to, we want to keep you. We may not be able to bring you back right now, but we do have plans for you. And sometimes more often than not, they might move those people to existing facilities that are reopening to keep them busy and and keep them. It may fly in the face of the term public relations, but it is, I mean, you say it's not public relations. I I would disagree in that it's internal public relations. I know that makes it not public. It's private relations, Um, but that's still still PR. PR. (laughs) But it's still a public, it's still a target audience. And sometimes in those particular cases, you have to mitigate the damage that could happen from them. So it doesn't go public. Right. I've done a lot of of workplace uh, communication. So you're right. It is is a form of communications. I think the decision-making is a management part. You have to cite the, you know, decide who they are and, and approach them as a manager. But if you have large numbers of people that you're dealing with, let's suppose it's a, uh, you know, an hourly workforce and they make a, let's say it's a bike factory and they make a 10 speed bike. And there's right now you, you can't deploy that line and you have so many good people on that line. Yes, definitely. It is an internal public relations issue and you need to let those people know that, and part of that, I think when we deal with workplace issues like that is you look at the market and you communicate a lot about what the marketplace is, is doing. So right now, if people aren't buying bikes, you, you, you let your employees know every day what the marketplace is like for bikes and you tell them this is the operating environment we're in. And so they know, then they can make a decision. As an example, though, I think bikes, everybody's buying bikes for some reason right now. Bikes. <laughs> I went to the store to get training wheels for Everybody's my daughter. Doing a bike. I couldn't find training wheels. Even training wheels are sold out. Like everything's just gone. Everybody's buying a bike. Maybe they figure we're going to run out of gas and they have to get out of town somehow. I, I don't know, but the bikes are just gone off the shelves. It's, it's weird. Bikes and toilet paper. I'm just picturing people <laughs> riding down the street with the toilet paper <laughs> under each arm or something. Um, so before we go, can you give us a couple do's and don'ts for um, you know, for this communicating, the balancing act, the bad news, a couple uh, takeaways for, for, for the listeners. I would say the first thing you want to do in, in every situation is speak to the facts and don't speculate. Uh, don't, don't join in the speculation of what could happen or what might happen. Just say, here's what has happened. Here's what's happening right now. Here's how these things are affecting us. And here's how they, if, if things don't change, how they would affect us you know, but you don't speculate on if it will happen or if it can't, you know, you don't, you don't go that extra step that other people do. So you don't speculate. You provide context. You give as much context to everything as possible. You don't let one fact speak for itself. So that's a good rule of thumb. Good point. Yeah. And that's, that's, a. I think that's really what makes a good crisis communicator a good one versus someone that says they are and aren't a good one. And that is, they're not thinking context. They're following a, 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 a cookie cutter approach that they read somewhere that you're supposed to do. But the truth of the matter is when, when you're really doing it, it's almost like you're, <laughs> it's almost like you're in a confessional with your client and you're finding out as much about them as possible. And you're getting as much context for yourself as possible so you can share that context with others. And it is very customized. It's very exclusive to them. And it's a very honest process. It should be. And then I I think as part of that, then you work your way out and you want to identify stakeholder concerns. 
So stakeholder is a, a corporate term I really don't like, but to give you an example, you know, an hourly employee, a part-time worker, uh, somebody who's an investor, an individual investor, uh, an investment banker, those are all investors. And then you have vendors and partners and people that buy licensing with your company. All these other people that do business with your organization are stakeholders. And you have to think, well, what's, what do they care about? What, it, whatever it is we're going to tell them, let's say it's a bankruptcy, what do they want to know about whether we'll be around, whether we'll, will they get paid in full, can we pay them in full, those types of things. What do they care about? We need to answer those questions before they have to ask. And answer. And if we can't answer it, tell them we're thinking about the question, but we can't answer it, and here's why. The more you do like that, in good faith, the more trust you'll have, and, and you need that trust to get your organization through a crisis. So Fantastic. those are some of the biggies. All right. That is so very true. Well said. Good, uh, good stuff, Tim. Uh, you guys are looking for, uh, for Tim out there. You can find him at obriancommunications.com. Uh, also, you can find him on uh, on LinkedIn, of course, and uh, Tim's podcast, the Shaping Opinion Podcast. Again, uh, great podcast, Tim. I love it. I like the the type of topics you guys have, the way you cover them. It's awesome. I recommend everybody uh, everybody go check that out. You can find more about Tim O'Brien and O'Brien Communications on the uh, show notes for this episode on ifyoumarket.com. And uh, please share us on social media. Tell a friend, give us a good review on iTunes. We always say any one of those three is fine. If you do all three, great. On behalf of Carla Joe Helms and the If You Market team and Tim O'Brien of O'Brien Communications, thank you for listening to the If You Market podcast, where we believe if you market the shit out of it, they will come. KJ, you have a, something to add in there? I couldn't figure out what to put inside the If You Market the Shit Out of It. Well, if you market to sit at it and get ahead of the story, right, and frame frame the narrative for your clients. See, that's way too much to, to cram inside the catchphrase. <laughs> With PR, they will come. If you market the shit out of it, yeah, fill in the there blank, they will come. Thank you. I really enjoy your podcast, too, and I'm, I'm so glad we were able to connect, and I appreciate you guys showing an interest in crisis communications. Absolutely. Anytime. Stay safe. Yeah, you were, you were a, a voice of reason in today's pandemic. Is your data company ignoring and gouging you or gouging and ignoring you? Those are the main reasons our customers move from the previous list provider, Mountaintop Data's Top Data Search platform. What's Top Data Search? Well, with Top Data Search, you can search our database of 20 million plus business contacts and download lists with complete contact information. It's a convenient tool for both sales and marketing departments to get accurate lists. It's free to have an account. There's no annual contracts, no seat fees. Top Data Search is just easy access to accurate data. And when you reach out to us with questions, we actually give you answers. Visit topdatasearch.com and sign up for a free account with the coupon code IYM300 and get 300 free credits. Or if you're just curious, go to topdatasearch.com and run some searches on our open search tool, no account needed, by clicking the search now button. That's at topdatasearch.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.